song, and uh, I think he was asking about pop and rock songs. I, I didn't respond, but I answered it in my own head, as maybe you will as well. I thought, well, if we're talking about uh, pop songs, I think the best line of, from a pop song is, swirling clouds of violet haze reflect in Vincent's eyes of china blue. So if you don't know that, that's from uh, Don McLean's song, Vincent, about Vincent Van Gogh. And then, uh, but I said, if I were going to answer, I would be strongly tempted to uh, quote the one line from Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean, then heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. What a beautiful, beautiful summary of the gospel. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. I'm going to read the entire text this morning and then just make reference to it as I plow through the sermon. So John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus... Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is almost certainly noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled to see that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that, whoever, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, there's a multitude of things that uh, might be said about this text, but I have decided to focus in on uh, the facts that will be an encouragement to evangelism and encouragement to evangelism. I have been a pastor of this church, whether as interim or part-time or full-time, for going on five years. And as far as I can remember, this is the first time that I have ever devoted an entire sermon to the subject of evangelism. Uh, I trust that when evangelistic texts come up, I talk about them and treat them just as they ought to be treated in their context. But as far as I know, this is the first time that I have devoted an entire sermon to encouragement in evangelism. In certain circles, you might think that the Bible teaches on every single page that the primary responsibility of every Christian is to be a soul winner. And uh, in a way, you might say that's true. But in another way, it's not true. 
So remember, this is a sermon encouraging you to evangelism, so keep that in mind as I, as I go through the following introduction. Uh, in some churches and in some denominational settings, you, you might well get the impression that on every single page of the Bible, there is the exhortation and the urging that you ought to be a soul winner. And what is often meant by that is that you need to be a person who passes out tracks at the bus station, or you need to be a person who uh, every day is uh, talking about the gospel with someone, and uh, if, if necessary, then go uh, find strangers that you can talk to the gospel about. Now, let me just interrupt this introduction right here and say, if you have witnessed to more people one-on-one than I have, then you've witnessed to a whole lot of people. So I'm not in any way uh, discouraging one-on-one cold turkey witnessing. I've done a whole lot of it. But what I'm getting ready to say now may come as a shock to some of you. There is not even one verse of Scripture in the entire Bible that says every Christian ought to be a soul winner. I think that the, the overemphasis that is given in many churches and in many denominations saying that every Christian ought to be a soul winner actually uh, hinders evangelism. Here's why I think that. Some of you grew up thinking that. Some of you still think that to this very day, and you're thinking maybe your preacher is a little bit off his rocker when he says that. But just remember, I'm not trying to preach what I think. I'm trying to preach what I think the Bible teaches. And so if you can find even one verse of Scripture that says every Christian is supposed to be a soul winner, then I'll be happy to say, well, I was wrong about that. The book of Proverbs does say, he that winneth souls is wise, but that's not soul winning in the way that most of us have heard about it. Now, I think that what happens is most people who grew up hearing that and who believe that every Christian is supposed to be a soul winner live under a cloud of persistent self-condemnation saying, I know that I ought to be a more outspoken witness for Jesus, but I'm just not, and uh, I should be doing this, and I should be doing that. And what happens is, if you think that soul winning consists only of your confronting complete strangers with gospel conversations, you'd rather get shot through the head than do that. You're not going to do that. Some of you are not going to do that even one time in your life. Are you disobedient your entire life? Well, you may be, but not necessarily for that reason. Someone else might say, well, Brother Jim, what about the Great Commission? Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, Go ye therefore into all the world, preaching the gospel to every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always. Isn't that an admonition that every Christian should be a soul winner? Well, let me ask you this. Is every Christian supposed to be a baptizer? Because that's also part of the Great Commission. And uh, the answer is no. 
Every Christian is not supposed to be a baptizer. If one of you leads somebody to Jesus, you're not supposed to just take them out in the backyard to the creek or to your pool and, and baptize them. You don't have the authority to do that. So who was the Great Commission given to? I believe that the Great Commission was given to the church, to local churches. And uh, that the Great Commission, how else could Jesus say, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age? If it was just given to those 12 those 11 disciples, then he's not going to be with them to the end of the age because they died within the next 40 or 50 years. But saying, I'm with you always, is an indication that the Great Commission has been given to the churches. And so here's what I believe the Bible teaches. You are to be involved in the administration of baptism, but it's because you're part of a church. And you are to be part of the, the ministry of evangelism. But the way that each individual member of the church practices evangelism will look different. Not everyone is a mouth. Some people are feet. Some people are hands. And, and so on, as, as the Scriptures say. I have used this example, I've said this example recently somewhere, I can't remember if it was here. And so, uh, if so, then just be patient with me. But uh, when the Chandlers and I were members of the church in Kansas City, where I was a member, you all will remember uh, the Stricklands who came and joined with us, so... uh, Mr. Strickland, Dr. Strickland, was a well-respected medical doctor. He had worked at Mayo Clinic. And he and his wife, Ellen, came and uh, were joining the church where I was pastor and where the Chandlers were member in Kansas City. And uh, like at Bullet Lick, if you're going to join the church, uh, we're, the elders are going to have an interview with you to make sure that you understand salvation and understand baptism, that you have been scripturally baptized, that you understand church membership and so on. So we we did that at Kansas City as well. And so in the membership with uh, the Stricklands, I asked, tell, tell me about your salvation. And so Dr. Strickland spoke up and he said, I was, I was doing my uh, internship residency. I was doing my residency and uh, Ellen uh, gave birth to a little baby that lived for just a few minutes and then died. And I, I came, I went home. Ellen was still in the hospital. I came home, drew the shades, and withdrew into a funk. And uh, he said, in the midst of that dark afternoon, there, there was a knock at the door. I went to the door, and there stood a woman that I did not know holding a covered dish in her hand. And she said, Dr. Strickland, I saw in the paper where your baby died. I just want you to know that I'm sorry. I'm praying for you. And I brought you this jello salad. And he said, I, I took that jello salad and I set it on the counter. And then I sat down and, and buried my face in my hands and said, Who are these people? I mean, Nobody from the hospital had contacted me. None of my colleagues had contacted me. And then somebody that I don't even know shows up at my door with a jello salad saying, I'm praying for you. And I said, you got saved because of that? He said, well, that, that made me search. Who are these people? 
And then that led to his being converted. Now, there was a woman who maybe she wasn't a mouth, but she sure could make a jello salad. And she was determined that she was going to use her gift in some way to further the kingdom of God. And I think that when preachers insist that the only way that you're being faithful to the Great Commission is when you engage in cold turkey, one-on-one evangelism, that most of you feel guilty about that and then don't go on to ask the next question, well, if that's not what I'm supposed to be doing, what am I supposed to be doing? Because there's some kind of gift, there's some kind of ability, there's some kind of opportunity that the Lord has given me. And I'm supposed to use that for God's glory. And if you have trouble figuring out how am I supposed to use this gift for God's glory, I'd be glad to talk to you about that. You know, if you you like fly fishing, well, at Bass Pro, they've got fly fishing classes Go join one of those fly, fly fishing classes, those fly tying classes, and then make it your goal, I'm going to share the gospel with the guys in this class. You like to play basketball? Don't always play basketball only with Christian brothers. Sometimes go to the playground. Go there enough so that people start to know you and that you'll have opportunities for conversation. Uh, you like to cook? You like to quilt. I mean, you just go on. Just find a way that you can do that in the presence of non-believers and then pray that the Lord gives you opportunities to have conversations. So I think that all of us are to be involved in the task of missions and evangelism. Some of you are good at making money. You're good at giving. Use it for the glory of God. Some of you are astute businessmen or businesswomen. You're able, to, you're able to arrange things. Use that for the glory of God. Uh, if your gift is serving, serve. If your gift is teaching, teach. If your gift is giving, give. And so on. <clears throat> because together we work as a team to carry out the Great Commission. But now let's look at this text with, <clears throat> with that lengthy introduction. Let's look at this text and gain some lessons from the example of Jesus and then from the example of this Samaritan woman. There are some things here that all of us, even if we're just going to be involved in a jello salad ministry, there are some things that we can learn from what Jesus does here. And there are basically three elements to the way that Jesus uh, talks to this Samaritan woman. The first thing is he talks to her about sin. Secondly, he talks to her about God. And then thirdly, he reveals something about the Messiah. And in thinking over this passage of Scripture, I kind of scratched my head and thought, I believe that the clearest statement in the Bible that God is a spirit The clearest statement is found in Jesus' conversation with this, what we might say, poor, ignorant, sinful woman. But he reveals something to her that has enriched people throughout the ages. And I think that when the woman says to him, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will reveal everything to us. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. I think that's the clearest statement that Jesus ever made, that he is the Messiah. 
At other times when he's on trial, you know, uh, are you the son of God? Jesus says something like, you say so. But to the woman of Samaria, he just plain just lays it out. No, no subtlety here. Yes, I who speak to you am he. And uh, so I, I find that interesting. But let's, let's go back and see how, that Jesus, how Jesus introduces and deals with these three topics, sin and God and the Messiah. Because when we can, when we have the opportunity, I think that we need to in, include those three elements in any gospel conversations that we have. Now, first of all, in order to have this conversation with the woman at all, <clears throat> there was a level of discomfort that was involved. And uh, I've gone back and forth in my mind as to whether or not it made Jesus uncomfortable. But Jesus was a, a Jewish man, and he had uh, been taught by example, if not by precept, keep away from the Samaritans. If you have to go through Samaria, go through as quickly as you can. For those of you who are not familiar with the geography of Israel, Jerusalem uh, was in the southern part of the state, and then in the middle was Samaria, and then on top was Galilee. And so Jesus has spent six or seven months with his disciples teaching them in the region of Judea, and now he's going to go back to Galilee, and he has to go through Samaria unless he wants to go around uh, the east side of the Jordan River. But the shortest route was to go right straight up through Samaria. It may not have been a geographical necessity that motivated him to do it. It may have been that he knew that he was going to go to Sychar and have this conversation with this woman and that a number of people that the Father had given to him were living there in Sychar and that his visit in Sychar would result in their conversion. But nevertheless, uh, if Jesus was not uncomfortable with talking to a Samaritan, there was a, a level of impropriety in his talking to a woman because there were uh, strictures about uh, a, a Jewish man, especially a Jewish teacher, should just never talk to a woman. By the way, <clears throat> this is uh, a significant aside there are some people who very foolishly say that Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and Christianity have uh, contributed to the, uh, the downgrading of women, that they have contributed to the stultifying of feminine influence and so on. For people who say that, I wish that you would just read half an hour in ancient history. I just wish that you would read for half an hour and uh, see how women were treated before Jesus and Christianity taught us otherwise. You don't even have to read in ancient history. What you can do is look in those cultures around the world that exist right now where the gospel has not had significant influence and just see the way women are treated in those cultures. Now, sometimes a, 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 a culture like France will be under the influence of Christianity for a while, they will learn to treat women well. They'll turn away from Christianity, but they still, treat, they still treat women with a level of respect that you will not see in the average Islamic country. Uh, so the idea that Jesus and, uh, and his, his followers have been uh, 
pushing women down just doesn't stand up to historical scrutiny and it doesn't stand up to geographic and ethnic scrutiny. Scrutiny. Jesus has, uh, has been a friend to women from the very beginning. And so there may have been a level of discomfort with the fact that he was talking not only to a Samaritan but also to a woman. Certainly the disciples were uncomfortable with it because when they came back from the foray into town to get some food, they came back and they were surprised to see him talking with the woman. But no one said to him, what do you want? I I don't know who they refrained from saying that to. If to the woman, it would have been like, what do you want? If to Jesus, like, what do you want? Uh, Or why are you talking with her? That definitely would have been directed to Jesus. And it's obvious that they were tempted to say that because John, who was among them, records that they never said it, but they were all thinking it. They were uncomfortable with the fact that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman. Certainly the woman experienced a level of discomfort. She said, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then I assume John adds this little parenthetical, although the woman might have said it, for Jews have no, Samarit- Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In the original text of the Bible, there wasn't any punctuation. So sometimes you just have to guess, is this an editorial comment? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Or was this something that the woman said? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She might have said that. What are you doing asking me for a drink? We don't, our people don't ever mix. So certainly she was uncomfortable. Even if you're going to deliver a jello salad, even if that's your ministry, I can almost promise you that you're going to experience some level of discomfort when you think, should I do it? How can I do it? What am I going to say? If you think that somebody like myself, who has been a preacher for more than 40 years and who has witnessed to hundreds of people at least, if you think that I'm completely comfortable with it, you're wrong. Uh, witnessing to people and talking about spiritual things with, uh, with people often involves a level of discomfort. You think, are they going to think I'm some kind of religious kook? I don't want them to think that I'm a fanatic. Uh, you know, thoughts like that will go through my mind, will go through your mind. And uh, so be prepared. If, if there is a, a gospel witness that's going to take place, there almost certainly is going to be some level of discomfort. But then this woman didn't just throw her water jar at Jesus and stomp off. He was able to engage her. And uh, when he engaged her, he eventually had to ask her or reveal that he knew about her shady past. So she starts asking him religious questions, and often that will be the case when you talk to someone about the Lord or you, even if you just deliver a jello salad to your door. They might come back and say, where do you go to church? Or Who, why did you bring me a jello salad? Why are you praying for me? <clears throat> well, then prepared to... Have some, be prepared to have some conversation with them. But uh, <clears throat> so this woman had some religious questions, and uh, and so she starts to ask them, and Jesus says, "Go call your husband." Now I'm sure that that was an uncomfortable moment for her, but this is part of the discomfort that comes when you're talking to someone in view of bringing them to Christ, 
well people don't think they need the doctor. There has to be some some way of talking about sin and talking about our need to be saved. And so Jesus says, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you, you just spoke the truth when you said you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So I don't know. It's, it's possible that the five men that she was married to all died. That's possible. But it's unlikely but whether or, not, whether or not she was legitimately a widow five times, she now was living, living with someone without the benefit of marriage. And Jesus points out to her, that's not right. And so that's, there's always some discomfort because you want people to like you, you know. And to say what you're doing is wrong, it's displeasing to God. It's uncomfortable, but if you love people, and they are destroying themselves with sin, then you're willing to go through the discomfort that you must endure and the discomfort that they will feel so that they might be confronted with their need for the Savior. And so there's some level of discomfort that is inevitably going to be involved when we talk to people about sin. Well, Jesus goes on from talking about sin to turning the conversation towards God. And this was in response to a religious question that the woman had. <clears throat> and so uh, the, the history of the Samaritans, as I read to you <clears throat> from uh, the historical account a few minutes ago, was that uh, when, when the Assyrians took the Israelites, the northern ten tribes captive, then the Assyrian leader put some people from other nations there, living along with some of the poorest of the Jews, and they intermarried. Uh, but God's displeasure was shown because he sent lions among them, and so they send word to the king of Assyria saying, you need to send somebody here who, who will teach us how to worship the God of this land because the lions are eating us up. And so they send a priest back, And so there was this amalgamation of true religion of worshiping Yahweh and false religion of worshiping the various gods that these people had had brought with them when they were sent to live in in this part of Israel. And so that that amalgamation uh, of religions was displeasing to the Lord and it was obnoxious to the Jews who kept religion pure and... And, uh, well, I forgot what I was going to say next. So anyway, Jesus, Jesus, uh, fields this question from the woman. Oh, here's what I was going to say. The Samaritans, the Samaritans held to the first five books of the Bible, but they didn't believe the rest of the Old Testament. So by this time, the Jews had 39 books in their Old Testament. By the time of Jesus, the Samaritans only held to the first five books. And, uh, so the Samaritans had built their own temple. When uh, Zerubbabel had, had come back and Nehemiah and they were building the walls and rebuilding Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, some of these Samaritans came and said, let us help you. And the Jews said, no, you can't help us. That was Sanballat and those guys, if you're, if you're an Old Testament reader. And so then the Samaritans go to this part of the country where Jesus has this conversation and they build a temple there. 
And so this woman is aware that there's a conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans on where people ought to worship. And so she asks this religious question that probably has been percolating in her mind. You Jews say that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, but our fathers said that we should worship on this mountain. And the implied question is, who's right? And Jesus says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So he's saying there's, there's coming about a real big change. And this also is one of the plainest statements that Jesus makes about the abolition of the Old Covenant and the establishment of the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was a covenant that was tied to a physical place. God had said, I'm going to put my name in Jerusalem. All the men of Israel are to make a pilgrimage three times a year to go to Jerusalem. And um, so there was a physical location where God was to be worshipped. But now Jesus says, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, motioning towards the mountain of Samaria, nor in Jerusalem, probably motioning towards the south. He does make this correction. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And so Jesus right there does away with the idea that it doesn't matter how you worship, just as long as you worship God, because Jesus says, you Samaritans don't know what you're talking about. And again, that probably made her uncomfortable and a little bit defensive, but it needed to be said. Because what Jesus says next is, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So you can't just make it up as you go along. You Samaritans have gone astray in thinking you can just build a temple here and anybody can serve as a priest in that temple. That's not what God said. When you worship God, you've got to worship him in the way that he prescribes. And the way that God prescribes has been enmeshed with uh, outward places like Jerusalem and outward ceremonies like drink offerings and grain offerings and and sacrificing animals. But he says, but that's all coming to an end. The time is coming and has now come when, when those who worship him will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. And these are the kind of worshipers that he is seeking. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And I know this is a sermon mostly about evangelism. But if God is looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth, don't you think you and I should try to make ourselves that kind of people? I mean, God's not looking for much. He's got everything that he needs, but it says that he is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. I want to volunteer for that job. I want to be one of those people who worship him in spirit and in truth. But Jesus says, there are some things that you need to realize about God. You cannot satisfy God through outward service because God doesn't need anything that you have. God is a spirit. And if you're going to worship God, your heart has got to be right. You've got to worship him in spirit and according to the way that he reveals in his word. And that's a very important part of any evangelistic encounter that you have that there are widespread notions that it doesn't matter how you get to God, all various religions lead to the same mountaintop and all that sort of thing. It's just not true. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you feel a little bit embarrassed about being so exclusive 
in insisting that Jesus is the only way, just remember that you don't need to be open, more open-minded than Jesus himself was. And so if people who are pursuing God through the wrong way, if they are going to wind up in hell because they have not gone about it the way that God has prescribed, you're not being a nice person if you just never talk to them about that. And so Jesus sets us that example in talking about sin and in talking about God. And you know, sometimes that may be as far as you get. Sometimes you might not get that far. Not everything that needs to be said has to be said right now. Sometimes you will say a little bit about the Lord And then you will just almost hear the door of that person's mind clang shut. What should you do then? Should you just keep on beating on the door? I don't think so. I think that the Lord is is able to open avenues of conversation for you. And if that's as far as you get, then maybe there'll be another time that you can go a little bit further with that person. Or maybe someone else will step in. And be able to pick up where you left off. So if you are, here's what I think you should do. In, in times when you're thinking about talking to someone about the Lord, just kind of push on that door a little bit and see if it swings open. Say something about the Lord. Say something about the Lord's goodness to you, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Say something about the Lord and see if the Lord opens a further opportunity. Several years ago, I was uh, going to go to the cabin. Many of you have been there, you, you men and boys. And uh, I had to pass through Moorhead. And living in Moorhead at that time was my uncle, Owen, who has, uh, who, who's been dead for more than 10 years. My dad was alive at this time. He was still living in southern Ohio. And my dad and I had agreed that we were going to meet at the cabin and uh, On the day that I was to go to the cabin, I came down with a cold, and I felt rotten. And I got off a little later than usual, And uh, but I I had been thinking, I'm going to stop in Moorhead and talk to my uncle Owen and his wife Kathleen, because neither one of them were believers. And uh, so when I got the cold, I thought, well, you know, I don't want to give him a cold. When I was late leaving, I thought, eh, it's going to be dark by the time I get to his house. But I thought, no, just go. Just go. And so I pulled over, went to his house, knocked on the door, and this tottery old gray-haired man in his 80s comes shuffling to the door. Man who had been a, a soldier who fought all over Europe and Asia in World War II, had stories about the war, that he wouldn't tell until, until he was an old man. But then when he started telling, then it was like, wow. And so he comes and uh, he, he turns on the porch light and he looks at me and he says, Why, Jimmy Scott, come in. And so I go in and there he is with his wife, both of them elderly. And uh, I talked to them and I went there for the purpose of sharing Jesus. They both were close to dying. And uh, I went there with the purpose of talking to them about Jesus. And so I just lit into it. 
after a few minutes, I just lit into the gospel and just got as, as much of the gospel out as I could. He needed to hear it. And I just went from, you know, sin to God to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And they never said a word. And in fact, their head was down. And I can just almost hear the wheels in their head saying, I wish he'd shut up. I wish he'd shut up. And so I thought, well, I'd, in fact, I may have even said this. I said, well, I, I don't want to be rude. I, I didn't come here just to talk to you about the gospel. I started to say something else, and my Aunt Kathleen snapped her head up and looked me in the face, and she said, no, don't you apologize for coming. We need to hear this. We need to get right with the Lord. I'm glad you came. I prayed that you would come. And I thought, man, I hadn't been in that house for 20 years. I'd seen them at family reunions. I hadn't been in that house for 20 years. And here this old woman says, I prayed that you would come. Well, I got fired up and you know, preached for another 45 minutes. It's like if I'm getting close to the end and somebody yells amen, just watch out, you know. You know, so I, I thought, well, they, they don't want to hear this. Please make him shut up. And then, no. And Kathleen said, Owen, I'll do it if you will. We need to get this right. And Owen remarkably said, I don't think I'm ready. He's got one foot in the grave. I don't think I'm ready. Now, Thank the Lord, those seeds that I sowed were later watered by someone else, and they both professed faith in Christ. And so since they had both been such outspoken deniers that they were Christians, when they were outspoken admitters that they were Christians, I, I think that leads, lends some credibility to the profession of faith, and I hope that we all get to see them in heaven someday. So sometimes you just need to push the door a little bit, and then when you think you've said all that you can, then somebody just might jerk the door wide open and give you more opportunity. And that's what happened there. But do try to talk about sin. Do try to talk about God. And do try to talk about the Messiah. So the woman says to Jesus, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Now, just at that moment, the disciples come back. And uh, they were surprised to see, her talk, see him talking with the woman, but no one said, why are you talking with her or what do you want? And then the woman, leaving her water jar, went back into the town. And I'm just going to skip over that part where the disciples say, Rabbi, eat something. Uh, instead, let's focus our attention now on the example of the woman. So the woman leaves her water jar there. Maybe so Jesus could get the drink he asked for. He leaves, she leaves the water jar there, and then she goes back into the town. And I want you to see this in your Bibles. So <clears throat> let me see what verse that is in. So verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Man, you talk about a weak witness. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Not, this must be the Christ. Surely he is the Christ. Just the question, 
Could this be the Christ? But then look at the way God used it. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So some of them became believers because of the woman's weak testimony. And then they came and list, some more came and listened to the word. And they said, verse 42, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So this lends to the point that I was making, that evangelism is a team effort. So Jesus was faithful in what he had been sent to do, and he spoke to this woman. And just about the time things were getting ready to get good, the disciples come, and and the evangelistic interview is broken up. And so we would think, wow, she's probably never going to get saved. But instead, this woman goes back into the town, and she gives her testimony. Now, that is something that every Christian can do when given the opportunity. You may feel uncomfortable with going through a sin and God and the Lord Jesus Christ, but you can at least tell what God has done for you. By the way, Jimmy Winfrey has already talked to us elders about having an evangelistic training class later on this year when the summer is over. And so just file that away if you feel like, well, you know, I can, I can deliver jello salads, but I would like to, I'd like to be a little more competent in my gospel witness. Lord willing, we will be offering a class later in this year uh, to, to help you with that. But here's a team effort. Jesus says something. The woman says something. And then they come back and they hear more from Jesus. You know, it. don't let anybody ever feel like you are being a wimp if as far as you get in witnessing to somebody is saying, I wish you'd come to church. It's the friendliest little church you ever did see. Our preacher's pretty entertaining. And uh, you, you, can, you can come and we'd just be glad to have you. Uh, some people say, oh, that's that's... That's a a despicable little witness. That's pretty much what this woman did. And because of her witness, then people came and heard Jesus and many more became saved. Another evidence of the team effort is when Jesus says to his disciples, Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? But I tell you, lift up your eyes and look. I can imagine there are people streaming out of this city towards Jacob's well. And he says, look, the, the fields are already... Ripe unto harvest. I have sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you are receiving the benefits of their labor. So sometimes our responsibility is to sow the seed. Sometimes God lets us water the seed. And sometimes God lets us harvest the crop. But we are all working together in God's kingdom. Now, this this entire sermon has been directed primarily to Christians But there's a lot in it for people in here who are not Christians. You have sin. You know what those sins are. There's probably none of you who would say, well, I'm not a sinner. Well, the fact that you are a sinner makes you wrong with God. God is holy, but he has provided a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to preach another evangelistic sermon right now, but just to say, if you have questions about how to be saved then virtually any member of of this church can talk to you about that. 
And if, if they feel like they've gone as far as they can, then they'll, they'll bring you to somebody who can talk with you, you a little bit further. But we would just be so delighted to talk with you about your spiritual concerns. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.